So in your life, in your life, I wonder who has set the standard you aspire to reach? Who has been that, that great model that you've always kind of set out in front of you? As a kid, whose poster was on your wall? For me, it was Homer Simpson, so there is hope. As you go about your day, still, I'm sure, whose life, whose life seems to cast a shadow over yours? Now, I know having a standard to which we aspire can, it can become unhealthy for all sorts of reasons, namely when we just have the wrong standard. But that doesn't mean that the concept is wrong. We see that the New Testament isn't shy about putting forward a standard for all the faithful. And when the New Testament writers need to illustrate what it looks like to trust God wholeheartedly, to have the kind of faith that is counted as righteous, one man emerges, and that is Abraham. And so what does it, what does it look like to have assurance about things hoped for? Well, look to Abraham. Right? And where can we see a life that has conviction about things not seen? Again, look to Abraham. And that's, that's what we're going to do this morning as we continue in our study of, of Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we'll unpack verses 8 to 10, and in the coming weeks we'll continue to hear about the life of Abraham and his family. So the point, uh, the point this morning is that Abraham's life, his life of faith, it still, to this day, sets the trajectory for how we live as his offspring in the faith. So my outline for the sermon is simple. Uh, so here it is, verse 8. Verse 8, we see in Abraham how the Christian life begins. Verse 9, we see the posture of the Christian life. In verse 10, we see the hope of the Christian life. So let me read Hebrews. I'll read uh, verse 1, chapter 11, and then verses 8 to 10. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer, whose designer and builder is God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So verse 8, verse 8 shows us how the Christian life begins. What do we notice? Well, I want us to notice four things that mark the beginning of Abraham's life of faith. First, we see that this life began only when God made himself known. The spark that ignites the fuse of the Christian life is God's gracious revealing of himself. 
And at the time of God's call upon Abraham, which we can find recorded in Genesis 12, he was living the kind of life we all live before God makes himself known to us. So listen to how Joshua describes Abraham's life before God's call. He's speaking to his fellow Israelites, and he says, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. See, Abraham, at the time God appeared to him, he was a worshiper. That's true of all people. You can read Romans 1 this afternoon to learn how Paul makes that case. And the point is that no one here, no one in this room, no one ever has lived a spiritually neutral life. Our hearts have never not been adoring and treasuring and serving something. And if you can name it, it's been the object of human worship. And we know that that's because of sin. Right? The natural heart adores and treasures and serves anything and everything but the living God. That's why Jesus' words ring true for every human. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus didn't have to argue if we have a treasure. He assumed it. You can't live a treasure-free existence. God, the living God, was not Abraham's treasure. And so what's strange is that the God that Abraham wasn't worshiping still came to him. And it's not as if God said to Abraham, wow, how do you find me? How did you do it? It would have been Abraham who was left speechless. And really, he could have given no explanation for it, except to say that it was all, it was all owed to grace. That it was an undeserved kindness that he could never repay. See, what this means is that the Christian life does not begin. It does not begin by you making yourself commendable to God. And that's strange. It sounds weird to our ears because that's how most things in our world function. If you want to get into that college, you better have the right grades. If you want to get that job, you better have the right credentials and connections. Teenagers, you know if you want to get into that friend group, you better have the right clothes, you better speak the right language. We're always trying to make ourselves commendable to someone. But God, in his grace, reveals himself to us while our hearts are hostile to his very existence. And like Abraham, we'd spend we would spend all of our lives chasing some idol apart from God's interruption. So I pray that this morning, if you do not know the living God, I pray that this morning would be that interruption for you. 
So listen to how Jesus puts it. In one of his recorded prayers, he said, he said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right? That's not bleak or discouraging news. Yes, it's a, it's a hit to your pride. But it's not discouraging because right after those words, Jesus offers an invitation. He says, come to me. Come to me. Right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those who labor and are heavy laden. Do you see, idolatry is a heavy thing. Spending your life laboring for some treasure other than the living God, that is a burden. And it all, and it all truly deserves God's judgment. And yet, as we see with Abraham, God, God gathers his people from the same condition that we're lost in sin. That we just keep loving the world, expecting it to deliver something else. He finds us broken. He finds us needing to be turned away from our idols to the living God. Christians, this is just a reminder that that's where we all were at some point. We were uncommendable people who were met by a gracious God who had our lives interrupted and turned around. So Abraham also shows us that the beginning of the Christian life requires us to make a severe break from our past. When we go back to Genesis chapter 12 and hear this call upon Abraham's life, you notice God kind of skipped the introductions. He just said to Abraham, go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That is Abraham. Leave behind everything that represents your security and your comfort and identity in this world. Now, please hear me. Don't start questioning the authenticity of your faith if you didn't pack your bags and leave home and you became a Christian. But the universal point is that in following Christ, our relationship to the things that once gripped us, the things that once dominated our lives, all must radically change. And we make a, we make a break from our, our sinful practices. Right? We begin the, this work of subduing our, our indwelling sin. We put off, as Paul says, our old self. Right? And in this life, it's, it's God's word. It's the Bible that begins to examine us. Right? It gets to expose and critique and judge and we also engage in this work when we live transparent lives with other Christians where there's accountability. But I want you to notice that this break 
also includes a new relationship to things that aren't inherently sinful. You see, Abraham's natural love for his kindred, his brothers, his family, I don't think that was inherently wrong. But what Abraham is showing us here, what God is teaching us through Abraham, is that even our relationship to the good things in our life, including family, are transformed when we follow Christ. For all of Abraham's life, his security and his comfort was his nearby family. He could call upon them in his time of need and trouble. And then God appeared and said, to follow me, you must from now on look to me as your only source. He said, my closeness to you from now on is all you're going to need and rely on. So friends, are there good things in your life that are a greater comfort, a greater security to you than God? And the most likely candidates are the people around us. Like they give us our comfort. They give us our security. They give us our sense of worth. And when that's the case, I want you to notice what that truly is. Is that's a form of using people. Right? Whenever we need people to constantly give to us a sense of comfort, a sense of protection, a sense of worth, you know what happens? It means we're less able to love them. And I think this is why we have such a hard time talking about Christ with those closest to us who don't know him. Give me a stranger, sure. Someone I see every day, I don't know. Because it makes vulnerable what we get from them their approval, their respect, an invitation to the next dinner party or whatever. See, the kind of break we need isn't about cutting people out of our life. The kind of break we need to make here is for the purpose of an unconstrained obedience to God. And that obedience never contradicts or undermines the good the ultimate good of another person. Right? Saying to someone that he or she isn't your ultimate comfort or protection, that is not a form of belittlement. Right? That's not an expression of, of hatred for that person. What it is, is it's evidence that you're free. You're free to serve and love the person as God intends. Right? The God who's made you totally secure and content in him. And so next we see from Abraham that the Christian life begins, it begins with an immediate obedience. See, verse eight literally reads, as soon as Abraham was called, he obeyed. It's like the word of God was still ringing in Abraham's ears as he set out. And so when I was thinking of a, of a metaphor here, 
I said, you know, Christian, the Christian life is like soccer, right? There are no timeouts, right? There's always action. So there's always supposed to be action. There's always movement, right? We listen to God in order to respond, to do something. And so how well are you listening, right? What's the, what's the noise level in your life? So when you go back to the beginning of Hebrews, the author begins, he begins by making this point, by showing his readers how much greater Jesus is than all things. And he begins by showing how much greater Jesus is compared to the angels. And then beginning at chapter two, he makes this conclusion. He says, therefore, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, heard from Jesus, lest we drift away from it. Friends, if hearing from Jesus in the scriptures is better than hearing from angels, it's certainly better than you fill in the blank. What the author is saying is that in the Christian life, there are, there are two options open before us. Either we, we drift away like dead fish on top of the water by neglecting the word, or we press forward as we listen and obey, as we listen and obey. And lastly, we see from Abraham that the Christian life begins with us forsaking our right to determine the destination. So notice at the end of verse 8, we read that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Think about that. Abraham wasn't even able to tell the person closest to him, his wife Sarah, where they were going. So it's an interesting to think about the dynamic here between Abraham's ability to listen to God and his wife's willingness to follow him in faith. Right? Husbands, how well are you leading in faith? Is the course that you're setting for your family one that is leading them closer and closer to God? And wives, are you willing to trust your husband's leadership even when you don't know where this obedience will ultimately lead and what costs are in front? That's just something to chat about at lunch this afternoon. But what we know is that that every worldly metric would have judged these these two to be fools. And that's why the journey is undertaken in faith. And please hear me. Faith. Faith is not perfect knowledge. And when you look back at the story in Genesis 12, there's no record of Abraham pressing God for more information. He's not asking for a roadmap. He's not asking, well... What will it cost me? What dangers lie ahead? 
All verse 4 says is that when Abraham heard from God, he went. My friends, we don't demand information from God that he's chosen not to give us. That's his right. And a complete knowledge of all things is not, it is not required for your obedience today. You got to get comfortable with such a thing as perplexed obedience. But what Abraham must not have been perplexed about was the character of God. He didn't know his ultimate destination, but he must have come to know in some way when, when God met him in this visitation, he must have been convinced, he must have known that this God who met him and called him away that this God was trustworthy. That his reason for calling Abraham to leave everything behind, that this call was ultimately rooted in God's love for Abraham and his family. You may not always be sure where obedience will take you. You may not be able to explain all the reasons why God asks us this to keep this particular command. But be assured that the God who requires our obedience, this God, he is not out to shame you. He is not out to lead you astray. And he is not out to deprive you of your ultimate happiness. Abraham relinquished his control to determine the destination of his life. And look what God did through him. It was beyond anything that Abraham could have achieved on his own. And that's true for us. Right? What little we'll accomplish, what small petty happiness we'll have, as we cling to having the final say over where we'll go and what we'll do. So now verse 9. We see in Abraham the posture required to live the Christian life. My guess is that when Abraham set out, he was anticipating a vacant land that would all be his. No more family members swinging by for the dreaded pop-in. But when Abraham made it to Canaan, do you know what he discovered? The land wasn't empty. There were people living there. Just so you see the irony. Abraham made it all the way to the land of promise. And then he lived there as a foreigner. He lived in tents, and not only did he live in a tent, but even his grandson, Jacob, continued to dwell in a tent. And as Alistair Begg pointed out in his sermon on these verses, tent pegs. Tent pegs barely go down below the surface. I think that's a picture of the kind of posture we need to live the Christian life. It's about not settling into this life, right? Our goal is not to build our permanent dwelling 
here. In a sense, we need to become greater foreigners to comfort. Everything that we have in this life, we need to be willing to hold loosely. The challenge, though, is that one of the powerful idols of our day is presentism. Right? We live for the moment. Present happiness is all that matters. Nothing should get in the way of us being happy now. And often we compromise on our convictions because we're prisoners to the moment. We lose touch with the reality of eternity. Teenagers, I remember at your age how powerful the grip of the present was on me. Right? Every grade, every swim result, what my peers thought of me, that felt like the only thing. But that's not the case. That things in this life, they are temporary. And what feels changeless today, it will change before you know it. That's why I encourage you, it's so important, so important to be rooted in God's word and not the words and opinions of people who will be out of your life in a few years. So friends, what's your posture towards the world? Right? What's your posture towards your present circumstances? You know, for Abraham, he began to understand that the land of promise was not going to be found on this earth. I think when he got there and he saw that the land was already populated, man, he began to think and say, ah, I get it, God. This isn't where I'm ultimately going to be. Do you know how tragic it is that so many people have found their land of promise here? And we're not above that. And the truth is we can feel the pull. We grow tired of waiting. We see what other people have and the pleasures that they're getting from the world. And what's happening in those moments is that the world, the things around us are far bigger than the eternity that God has for us. And so in, in those times, remember these words from Jeremiah Burroughs in his classic work, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. He reminds us. He says, we're going away to another country. You are, as it were, only lodging here for a night. If you were to live a hundred years in comparison to eternity, it is not as much as a night. It is as though you were traveling and had come to an end. In comparison to eternity, that's what this life is. Like spending a night in an inn. So Abraham's life of faith shows us that the Christian life is lived in the posture of a pilgrim. Verse 10 shows us the hope that sustains us. And the hope, the hope is that one day we'll move out of our earthly tents into the city of the living God. We know that there's a constant search for happiness in our day. People are, are looking for some sort of security. 
They're longing for something that will resolve their worries. But for Abraham, he wasn't searching. The text says he was looking forward to this city. There is a great difference between a life of searching and a life of waiting. And Abraham was simply waiting for God to deliver what he had promised. And what the Bible shows us is that the thing that will satisfy the aches of your souls, that will still the unrest of your anxious hearts, that will secure you from your greatest fear is not something that you could ever design or build. It is the city of the living God that will come down to us. And the greatest thing about that city is God will be there. And we will dwell with him. And all the former things, they will be no more. Abraham trusted that he'd make it into this city. He looked away from himself and believed that God would honor his promise. But I want you to know, I want you to see, is that Abraham didn't know what we know. That is, what God would do to make it possible for us to live there, to live in his holy presence. And because of our sin, it is not natural for sinners to want to dwell in the presence of God because the presence of God means the gaze of God. And people with shame and guilt do not want to be exposed. And so how is it that people with shame and guilt, people who would prefer to stay covered up, unexposed, how is it that they can make it into the city in the presence of God? At the end of this letter, the author takes time to remind his people why they are not to partake in the temple services in Jerusalem. And listen to what he says. He says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So where did Jesus suffer? He said outside the gate. What is outside the gate? That means outside the earthly city of Jerusalem. So here's what we know that Abraham didn't. We are cleansed by Jesus' blood that was shed outside the earthly Jerusalem so we could be washed so our shame and our guilt could be done away with and we could enter the heavenly Jerusalem where there will be no unclean thing. What we get to know is that the way into this city is under the cross. Remember, the author of Hebrews he was, remi- he was writing to Jewish Christians to remind them that the earthly Jerusalem 
and all of its sacrifices and ordinance and worship, it was but a shadow of the heavenly one. And our temptation is not to return to the temple, but it is similar in the sense that we can be drawn back to our former life. So are you tempted to give up waiting for the city that is to come? Does the Christian life seem filled with too many sacrifices and unnecessary sorrows? Do former sins seem attractive again? And the author of Hebrews keeps coming back to this one answer over and over again. Keep considering Jesus. It says keep paying attention to him. Keep listening to him. Until we reach that city, you and I need to rise each day and make our way somehow out of this city to where Jesus was crucified for us. And if his blood, if his blood was the price of our admittance, we can believe that in his city, In his city, his love for us, it is going to swallow up any pain, any rejection, anything that we've had to endure in this brief, momentary life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your sacrifice, for your blood that was shed to wash us. And we know that you did that not simply to tolerate our presence in your eternal kingdom, but to actually delight in us being there. So I pray that you would encourage us in your love for us, that you would give us a great assurance and a deep conviction of your righteousness, your merit, and your perfect grace and love for each one of us. We ask in your name, amen.